Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Coming up later in today's program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose brings us a conversation on local food security amidst global challenges in part three of a series with Jamie Scholl of Resilience, a permaculture health consultancy in Bloomington. And now for your environmental reports. Inside Climate Change Reports, Republicans are doubling down on their attacks on clean energy and climate spending. This kicks off their return to Congress with a slew of bills and amendments that would block key funding pools established under the Inflation Reduction Act and prohibit the federal government from advancing policies aimed at reducing the nation's greenhouse gas emissions, according to new reports. Congress must pass a number of spending bills by September 30th, when current funding expires, to avoid a government shutdown. While Democrats and Republicans narrowly avoided a U.S. default last month when they reached a fragile deal to raise the debt ceiling, this week's budget talks already appear to be on shaky ground as far-right members of the GOP continue to frame climate action and other progressive concerns through America's culture wars. In fact, environmentalists are accusing House Republicans of sabotaging any chance for a budget deal this fall by slipping so-called climate poison pills into their spending proposals. A poison pill is an amendment to a legislative bill that considerably weakens the bill's intended effect or ruins the bill's chances of passing. The The National Environment Satellite Data and Information Service, known as NESDIS, is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and reports on the status of Florida's coral reefs. They say that if ocean temperatures are higher than the maximum monthly average for a month or more, especially during the warmest part of the year, even by as little as 2 degrees Fahrenheit, corals will experience bleaching. A bleached coral is essentially starving to death because it has lost its main source of nutrition, the algae that live symbiotically within its tissues. The damaged corals experienced from marine heat waves is a function of their duration or how long the heat stress occurs, plus the magnitude of the heat stress. Corals can recur. Corals can recover from bleaching if the heat stress subsides, but the corals that are able to recover frequently have impaired growth and reproduction and are susceptible to disease for two to four years after recovery. There are downstream negative impacts to the corals that are able to survive a heat stress event. If the heat stress does not subside, the coral will die. Mortality becomes likely if the corals experience sea temperatures one degree centigrade greater than the historical maximum monthly average for two months, or two degrees centigrade greater than the maximum monthly average for one month. 
Also, if there is a temperature deviation of, of say, 3 degrees centigrade, then the corals would be expected to start experiencing mortality in less than three weeks. Many corals grow optimally in warm temperatures between 73 and 84 degrees Fahrenheit, but some can tolerate temperatures as, hu- as high as 104 degrees Fahrenheit for short periods. During previous large-scale bleaching events in the Florida Keys, the most recent severe events were in 2014 and 2015. The bleaching level did not occur until mid-August. So we are a full month ahead of what we historically have called the normal bleaching season. What this means is, unless significant cooling takes place, for example, repeat passage of hurricanes or tropical storms, the corals of the Florida Keys may be looking at upwards of three consecutive months of thermally stressful conditions. This would be unprecedented in the satellite record because most previous bleaching events lasted about four to six weeks. The coral reefs of the Florida Keys have undergone a dramatic decline since the late 1970s, primarily due to disease and coral bleaching, both of which are directly linked to increasing ocean temperatures. Many coral reefs in the Florida Keys have lost much of their coral cover. Recent research by both NOAA and the U.S. Geological Survey have shown that 70% of of Florida's coral reef tract is in net erosional state, which means the reef framework structures are slowly eroding. This is alarming because the many marine species that inhabit coral reefs are directly dependent on the three-dimensional, architecturally complex framework structure of coral reefs. We are losing this structure because there is not enough live coral left to maintain and build it. Many species that rely on coral reef habitat are vital to Florida's economy, such as various fishes, spiny lobster, and stone crabs. We are already losing vital habitat in the Florida Keys that so many organisms depend on for their survival. Changes are occurring so rapidly that it's difficult to believe the corals can adapt. Perhaps one way to have corals near our coast is to have migration of the bloom northward. Once a year, on cues from the lunar cycle and the water temperature, entire colonies of coral reefs simultaneously release their tiny eggs and sperm, called gametes, into the ocean. There is little reason to believe the corals around Florida or anywhere in the Gulf of Mexico will survive this summer. Perhaps the best route is to take cuttings from current reefs and plant them along the east coast. The Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington, reports an outlook now that we are in an El Nino year. It's bad news for salmon and steelhead runs up and down the West Coast, including those that return to the Snake and Columbia Rivers. The NOAA Climate Prediction Center said last week that El Nino conditions are now present off the coast of South America, and they can be expected to gather strength by this winter. According to a news release from the agency, the weather phenomenon is identified by the accumulation of warmer-than-normal sea surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean, west of South America, near the equator. El Nino, which means little boy in Spanish, influences global weather patterns. Quote, depending on its strength, El Nino can cause a range of impacts, such as increasing the risk of heavy rainfall and droughts in certain locations around the world, end quote, said Michelle LaRue climate scientists at the Climate Prediction Center in the news release. Climate change can exasperate or mitigate certain impacts related to El Nino. For example, El Nino could lead to new records for temperatures, particularly in areas that already experience above-average temperatures during El Nino. It also influences salmon survival. 
El Nino brings warmer sea surface temperature to the northern Pacific Ocean, an area where salmon and steelhead spend their time at sea. Ocean water off the continental shelf that normally is dominated with northern copepods, fat-laden creatures near the bottom of the food chain, are replaced with skinny southern copepods. Young salmon need to pack on weight to survive, but the El Nino reduced diet reverberates up to the food reverberates up the food web. With less to eat, the survival of juvenile salmon and steelhead generally declines during El Nino years. Algeria reports wildfire, wildfires have become more intense in Russia in recent seasons, helped by unusually high temperatures in Siberia driven by climate change. They release millions of tons of carbon and other pollutants into the atmosphere each year. Hundreds of fires are burning out of control. The 2021 fire season was Russia's largest ever, with 46.5 million acres of forest destroyed, according to Greenpeace Russia, about two times the size of the acreage of Indiana. Up next, we explore ways to achieve local food security through responsive integrative policy and shaping redevelopment strategies that foster rather than hinder organic urban agriculture. The full interview with Jamie Show will become available as an ECO report extra on the WFHB website. When it, when it, so when looking at household and community food security, it's seeing that we can do succession planting and season extension and what things can be um, harvested from the ground or grown inside, uh, depending upon what someone's situation is, if they have a basement or not, mushrooms. I mean, looking at this holistically. And then there's the preservation part. But it, when looking at it all and how, what is it we are eating, are we mostly in our diets relying on um, uh, processed carbohydrates through bread and spaghetti and things like that, which I've eliminated pretty much from my diet unless I make those things myself. So I do a lot of uh, home cooking. Um, but even then it's difficult. How often do we have somebody that makes and grows local wheat that's not sprayed or why I would love to see what's going on at the Land Institute and some local farmers, someone in the county growing perennial wheat. And the Land Institute has been with Wes Jackson starting that, has been working on that and um, in that nonprofit, I think he's now retired, but the, they're hoping to get that totally finalized, but it is available now. But then we have the pro processing. Do we have the processing facilities? You know, we don't have an abattoir for chickens and ducks and things like that for those who eat meat. Um, but do we have the combines? Those are, that's really expensive equipment. And as a community, how much should be possibly owned locally to then? So there's this whole grander vision that, you know, things that I see and concern is that how, how do we meet those needs based on what some people need in their diet? Because some people would be more reliant on that and it's fine for their health. I'm not advocating that one way of eating and being is the same for everyone and it's going to be beneficial because we need that kind of diversity. 
but without seeing the agricultural, um, you know, the food security and food sovereignty, that's a key, another key thing with seed saving, that we are then at, um, at the vagaries of, you know, the economic system, the, the food system we saw during COVID did not function well. Farmers couldn't get their foods to where they need to be. Well, because they were so far away from where the customer is, if we had, you know, more agriculture closer and urban agriculture or just those farms, that's not annexed, <laughs> you know, but right there with the city, that's something else. So all of these things would be wonderful to discuss at the community level, because what fits one community may not fit another community. And the way things had been progressing when I was last uh, really active in urban agriculture and advocacy here in Bloomington um, has, has changed. So we no longer have that same unified development ordinance. There have been other questions in another document out there, which really doesn't uh, contain as much information and details and the research behind it, it seems, then was in the peak oil task force um, task force report, which I believe is still on the city website. And that goes into the more of the details of what we would need to have. And from my perspective, it is still much more complete and holistic a view in that document for food than what we currently have. So I'd love to see us going back and reevaluating that and doing some updates on that to see where are we now? Because we had this information then, and I see that we have gone backwards from whenever I last was really involved. And that is incredibly concerning when we're looking at, you know, we could say climate change, but another friend of mine from years ago is like, well, we have a heating planet, but it's really climate instability. And that is what really hitting with the changes in uh, heat, late frost. I mean, these are things that people may not know is that, so when we don't, when we have those late frosts, we have, for me, this really hit because I was starting to sell uh, this year, um, that it hits the fruit trees and they will not bloom, but it has to do with microclimates as well. So some people in other parts of the state that maybe an hour, hour and a half drive away wouldn't have had this effect. But here in Bloomington, did anyone see any mulberries, you know, falling down on, <laughs> on Washington Street this year? Uh, no, that meant that the, the uh, catbirds and the cardinals and they were eating the black raspberries, which meant less for human harvest. My harvest, preservation for the winter. Um, as well. So we see these environmental effects, but it's not just how it affects us directly of this temperature is on this with this climate instability, but how are we going to fluctuate with that, seeing how it affects the other creatures with whom we share this world? So do we need to plant more mulberry or uh, like a native mulberry, uh, black raspberry or other types of berries for in, in preparation for that time since we, we've had that a few times in the last three or four years. Because my harvest is, and you can't cover brambles unlike uh, blueberries. Um, 
So how, how are we going to manage that? So it may be more than just, hey, it's deer. Let's look at our wildlife completely. And how do we share this world with the other creatures you know, in a good way? So it's benefiting all of us because we should all know by now that when things are out of balance, it's not good for anybody. And we're seeing these extinctions and close to getting close to extinctions in other parts of the world. How do we take care of those creatures here with us now? It's not just relegating them in my perspective. It's not just relegating them to the other side of the fence and concreting everything. But how do we care for them? And how do we manage the situations? Because we're the ones with the big brains and we're the ones that's creating you know, all of these different issues in our environment. And if we really care for these creatures and love these creatures as we do ourselves, then we need to look at how do we care for them as we do ourselves. And as you mentioned, the institutional memory is kind of not being transmitted down as there are turnovers with appointed positions and boards and uh, commissions and things um, where new people are coming in and they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily picking up a thread of what was started 10 and more years ago. That discontinuity, um, I think, is a central problem to a cohesive vision actually taking hold rather than moments of inspiration and uh, you know, rousing each other into, aren't we doing something great on this or that project and not having an overarching, cohesive, integrated strategy in the, in the form of, you know, like emergency management or disaster preparedness with climate change as climate disaster, climate catastrophe. Some would say we don't even have a really good structure for disaster relief or momentary problems, let alone this ongoing shift in the way everything works mm -hmm. uh, with seasonality and different populations and with these mass extinctions going on. You know, the heating of the oceans, that's probably gonna be quite disruptive of the ocean, affecting the atmosphere, affecting other species down the way. I mean, we are going to be facing a lot of major effects on things that we've taken for granted. And it seems central to this is building these local, this local resilience. Yeah, and so, I completely, uh, I, and so, yes, I'm right there with you. And it's not just going to be the slowing, because I've looked at that, this uh, heating of the oceans and there's currents in like the Atlantic ocean that keeps well, it affects the jet stream. So we're seeing the jet stream becoming wobbly um, and behaving in odd ways. But that, that change of the ocean is also going to affect, say, France, England. Those places are, that are uh, people, where people live now could be plunged into temperatures much colder. So we have uh, the unrest and things going on, wars in Europe, Middle East, and, and it makes things very precarious. I see that we're in a very precarious, complex situation. 
And I know a lot of people want to say that technology will solve the problem. We see that uh, throughout history, technology is implemented and it does <clears throat> and can solve some problems and it creates others. Do we have the foresight as a species to identify what and, and will actually take the time? I don't think it's that we have a lack of foresight. I think it's a lack of will. We have, especially in the United States, this love for something new and glittery and glamorous and want to do away with, you know, leave the par farm behind, you know, the victory gardens and going back. But people wanted, they came back from wars and they wanted to leave the farms. It was hard work. We have better technology now that has been developed by farmers, whether that's like Elliot Coleman and his hoe or other, other types of things that make, and knowledge that make that easier and more product, and this is where small spaces, small space gardens are more productive than farms. So if we can find a way to integrate these things, but keep in mind that larger vision of what's going on in the world, in our country, and then bring that down to home in our state, bring that down into what's going on. Um, maybe there's needs to be, and I see that if you're looking at food, we need more of a collaboration with the county. And maybe a commission of something set up that includes both county and city to know how are we going to feed the people? Because it's not just importing foods and getting them to food banks and taking the money and tossing it to corporations to bring in subpar food for our most vulnerable peoples, leaving them then in, in situations to where they may not get the health care they need. We could also look for other monies and get that, say, combine and things that make us uh, more resilient as a, as not just the Bloomington community, but the larger Ellettsville, Steinsville, you know, all, all of us, we are connected. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the blue-spotted salamander. The blue-spotted salamander is a mole salamander native to the Great Lakes region and the northeast U.S. They are between three to five and a half inches in length, of which the tail comprises 40%. Their skin is bluish-black with blue and white flecks on its back and bluish-white spots on the sides and tail. They're long and slender with long toes. They can be found in moist, deciduous hardwood forests and swampy woodlands. Underbrush, leaf litter, rock, and logs are commonly used for shelter. They feed on spiders, centipedes, slugs, and earthworms. To defend itself, the blue-spotted salamander lashes its tail back and forth, producing a noxious secretion from two glands at the base of its tail. If the predator gets past this defense, the salamander's tail will detach and the predator is left with a writhing tail while the salamander zips off to safety. In time, its tail will grow back. It is endangered and it is illegal to kill or collect this species. 
The main threat to the species is the loss of its forest habitats due to logging and road building. Acid rain may also be a potential threat. Also, the temporary ponds the blue-spotted salamander requires for breeding are often altered by dredging, filling in, or by added predatory fish. You've been listening to In Nature. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I'm Brandon Blewett. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Special guest speaker David Rupp, owner and guide for Indigo Birding Nature Tours, will be at Wild Birds Unlimited in Bloomington on Saturday, July 22nd at 4 p.m. He will give a presentation on how understanding bird migration. McCormick's Creek State Park has a fun-filled all-day event celebrating Wild About Wildlife on Saturday, July 22nd. Events begin at 10 a.m. with birding bingo and end at 7 p.m. with wildlife tales by the campfire. A variety of events take place all day. Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area is hosting a Dove Banding Day on Wednesday, July 26th from 1 to 2 p.m. You will learn how to check dove traps, learn why doves are banded, and the process of banding. Bring sun protection and insect repellent. Registered at EPLUMIER at DNR.IN.GOV or call 812-512-9159. Learn about the life of a salamander at Springmill State Park on Wednesday, July 26, from 3 to 3.30 p.m. Learn about their life cycle and what adaptation make them so special. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Amphitheater. Enjoy a full moon hike around Lake Ogle at Brown County State Park on Saturday, July 29th from 9 to 10 p.m. The Sturgeon Full Moon is considered a supermoon. You will hike Trail 7 as you learn the history and folklore of the Sturgeon Full Moon and what a supermoon is. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noelle Perhushke-Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noelle Perhushke-Schneider produced today's show. And Brandon Blewett is our engineer. Thank you, Brandon, for taking over for us today. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Brandon Blewett. And this is Eco Report, and thank you for joining us.